it's hard to believe that this is the last night of the retreat. It seems like we've been in such a timeless space. So tonight is a kind of wrapping up summary. probably noticed even in these last few days of the swings that you go through as you leave intensive practice, swings of mood and swings of emotion, swings of mindfulness, of concentration, of stillness, of inner racket. And hopefully There's at least a trace of equanimity behind it all. This equanimity factor is very important, especially as you leave. This is an incredibly protected environment. And there's a tremendous power and strength that comes from that protection. As you leave here, the level of input is going to be increased enormously. If you think Amherst is hectic, (laughs) wait. (laughs) It's like the world is operating at a different speed, much different speed. And there's a whole adjustment process that takes place and part of it will be a continuation of these cycles. You know, feeling happy and feeling depressed and feeling connected and feeling alienated. And this process will probably go on for the rest of your life. (laughs) So... Equanimity is helpful. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, after a retreat and people kind of get into a depression or just a wondering or a doubt, or, you know, what was that all about? And maybe you feel cut off in a certain way. Know that that is part of the process. It's not that something is wrong and it's not that you're missing something. Be patient with these swings, with these changes. They're going to happen. I think the main principle of bringing practice into our daily life is something which if we can remember, if we can really plant the seed deeply, is so enriching in our lives. And that is that the practice of the Dhamma is not something apart from our lives. It's not something we do. It's something we are. It's something we live. 
if we can remember not to fragment our lives into our meditation practice and everything else, will really serve serve us to use the whole of our lives, to use the totality of our lives as our practice. It is the Dhamma. Now, one of the things we've talked about over these months is the understanding of the mind and body as nama rupa, that is mental, physical phenomena, arising and vanishing. It's all nama rupa, here, there, everywhere. It's all nama rupa. And so we can bring the same level of interest to explore it and understand it in whatever form. Sometimes yogis leaving a retreat, and especially a long one like this, where there was tremendous effort put forth, sometimes yogis leave with a mistaken assumption which is that after all this time and all this effort, that it's our due for mindfulness to follow us. It's like, we've done our work, and now mindfulness should just be with us. And so we relax the kind of effort that we make in our lives. As much effort as you made during retreat, that much effort is needed out of retreat. That's a little shocking, (laughs) you know, because we tend to relax our effort. In some way, I see practice, the, the formal meditative practice, in some way as being a place to learn how to make right effort. We learn how to do it so that we can actually bring that quality of effort into our lives. That's what's needed. Because without it, without this continuing encouragement of the mind, effort of the mind to pay attention, we forget. And just as the mind can evolve towards greater and greater clarity and stillness, it can also devolve. So it takes care, it takes, it takes a willingness. So then people wonder, well, what kind of effort? How can I make effort? What's the appropriate kind of effort outside of retreat? Here it's very simple. We sit and walk and sit and walk and sit and walk and make endless mental notes. That's not how we live our lives outside. So what do we do? The Buddha, as usual, gave very clear framework for the kinds 
of effort, the kinds of training that we need to develop. He talked about spiritual practice as being the cultivation of three arenas of training. And as we understand this and apply it and develop it, we see that these three arenas become our life. The first of them, which we've talked about very often and is so fundamental, is the training in sila, the training in morality, in non-harming. Most of us, I think, are fairly well established in some degree, in a fair degree, perhaps quite a high degree of sila. What becomes challenging is to see how it can further be refined. Not simply to go along being basically good, well-meaning, non-harming people, but really to take a look at our actions of body, our actions of speech. How can we refine it? And there's a tremendous beauty in this. You've had great opportunity in these last few days just to notice the energy, the content, the quality of speech It's so difficult to really stay mindful, to stay really attentive to how we use that energy. It becomes even more difficult outside. The creativity of refining sila has to do with noticing the effects of our actions, the actions of our body and the actions of our speech, to really notice, to have a keenness of observation of how they are affecting our minds. When we do certain things, what is the quality in the mind? It's so easy to be on cruise control in our lives We go on well-established patterns and habits. It's difficult to arouse the energy to step out of the habit, out of the pattern, in order to observe. This is important because it's not that the particular quality of mind that is arising is just a momentary phenomenon and then it's gone. But in every moment, we are developing something, we are practicing something. And so every moment of experience, we're either cultivating wholesome, skillful states of mind or the opposite. And in every moment that we get lost in angry speech, That is what is being strengthened in that moment. In every moment that we are conscious of skillful speech, that's what's being cultivated. And so there are consequences 
There's, there's a tremendous importance to what we do. So we watch, in terms of our actions, how it affects our own mind. We watch how it affects other people. And one of the great rewards of Dhamma practice, of meditation, is our growing sensitivity. And to be able to see and to feel and to understand the impact of our actions, of our speech on others. We can see it because we're paying attention. It makes for much more sensitive and open relationships. We observe the effect of actions in our own minds. We observe the effects of actions on others. And something that may not often arise in the mind, but which provides a tremendous inspiration and perspective on what we're doing is to cultivate that sense of a long-term perspective. What are the long-range consequences? What are the karmic results of these kinds of actions? We're seeing it so clearly now and the kinds of things Mirabai was talking about last night and the environmental issues on the planet and all around us it's coming home in such a clear way that there are long-term consequences and that we can't ignore them. So to draw that same principle to the effect, the long-term effect of our own actions My mind has quite a natural proclivity towards the long, big picture. I even in college and studying philosophy, most of the philosophy professors you know, wanted these incredibly small, minute, detailed analysis of logical arguments. And it was so boring to me. And my mind always wanted to kind of describe these grand metaphysical systems And from that perspective, which just happens to be my own particular quirks, it just seems, you know, this life is like just a short weekend or a long weekend. And it's just really quick. So to see what we're doing in a much bigger picture, where is it leading? Where are we going? What's being developed? This is the importance of sila. The Buddha talked of it as being the genuine beauty of a being. In our, in our culture, so much emphasis is placed on external beauty. You know, and you've, you've been looking through the magazines or the newspapers and just all the advertising making a virtue of external beauty and completely missing that place where true beauty resides. It has to do with this refinement of sila, the refinement of our action. And it's inspiring. 
just inspiring to do that for ourselves and for others. The heart of it, or the motive force behind it, is the feeling of metta and compassion. Why do we do that? We do it out of feelings of love and compassion for ourselves and other people. And so those become the qualities in mind which begin to emanate out from us. In our refinement of sila, loving care gets strong, compassion gets strong, forgiveness becomes strong. And it's so obvious that we are thereby creating this environment inside and around us of great beauty. One of the most striking things about visiting Deepama in Calcutta was the contrast between where she lived and the feeling around her. Because the conditions were so horrible. You know, by our, by Western standards, it was just slum conditions. But we would go up and sit in her room and there was so much inner beauty that it just radiated. And it completely changed the environment. That's the power of it. So this is the first domain of training, the first area of training. And this is something that is not limited to any particular form, to any particular circumstance. It's how we're living our lives. So we need to really be watchful and to take care and to nourish and and deepen our understanding of what sila means. The second area of training is what the Buddha called samadhi, which has to do with the development of right effort, right mindfulness of concentration. It's giving attention to the discipline necessary to strengthen these forces in the mind, which makes possible greater and greater power of understanding. Now you've sure got a taste over the three months of the potential of power in the mind. That is just stronger and stronger force of ability to see, ability to understand. So that we're not just tossed about by all the thoughts and feelings and images and being tossed about on a small boat on the surface of a a rough ocean. With these three qualities of effort, mindfulness and concentration, there's a strength that develops. So our lives become strong. The analogy which 
may have been mentioned sometime during the retreat, but is very apt, is that of, if you take a thread, it's easy to break one thread. You intertwine three threads together, it becomes very difficult to break. These are the three factors in the mind that have to be intertwined. Effort, mindfulness, concentration. When they are, there is this tremendous strength and stability in the mind. We're no longer so easily overwhelmed by the kilesas, by the defilements. When our mind has this strength, so that as the kilesas come, the mind is not overwhelmed, what is the result of that? The result is that the mind becomes increasingly peaceful. What makes the mind disturbed or heated up, suffering, are the presence of the kilesas. When we're being mindful, when there's effort, when there's concentration, it's like a visitor comes to the door and we see that it's a visitor that is just going to cause trouble. We don't have to either be bowled over, the visitor comes tramping in anyway, and we don't have to say, oh, I'm so glad you came, come on in, stick around a while. There's a power in the mind. We can see that this causes suffering. It's not that they're not going to arise. They'll arise plenty. You know, there'll be anger and desire and fear and loneliness. And but what's our relationship to them? Do we let them overwhelm the mind, or do we have that strength and power really to see them, to observe them, to see that they are visitors? that they don't belong to us, they are not us. This changes tremendously the way we're living our lives. The question then is how to strengthen these three factors, which is what you've been doing for these three months, how to do it in the context of a busy daily life how to keep the effort strong and the mindfulness strong and the concentration strong. Absolutely indispensable is a daily sitting practice. It's the bedrock of really fostering and nourishing these qualities. Sit every day. So twice a day, so three times a day, at least once. Sitting once a day is keeping your sanity. After a retreat, and especially, sometimes I think of the three-month retreat as Vipassana boot camp. It's like people come in and By the time they come out, there's really this tremendous wealth of experience in practice. It's like you all are very experienced yogis. 
And I think we all have this tendency to think, having been through so much, just hour after hour after hour, to sit an hour, even two a day, no problem. And I've been sitting six, seven, eight, practicing 14, 15 hours a day. It is a problem. (laughs) And it's hard to do. It's hard to keep the daily practice going because there's not much support for it. And so we have to create some inner discipline of giving it and making it a priority. Arrange the day around your sitting. One of the biggest traps that people fall into is that after some time, they begin to judge their sittings. Now, there'll be times when it's really clear and good and connected and other times where you sit and you just fall asleep and you're sleeping the whole hour or the mind is thinking for the whole hour and you're with one breath and so then Mara comes in this is stupid, I might as well just stay in bed and get the hour's rest or I'm too agitated to sit you know, I might as well just get up and do something else watch out for Mara Mara loves the world just loves it. And will find so many ways. Say, oh, you don't have to sit now. Or, I'm too tired to sit. <laughs> Thousands of excuses and rationalizations and watch out for it. <laughs> sit every day. Clearly, if you can sit an hour at a time, 45 minutes at a time, that's great. It may be that on certain days you don't have that amount of time. Sit half an hour, sit 20 minutes. Just to get into the position calls up the force, calls up the parame of all the work you've done here. You keep the thread, you keep the momentum on some level. When we first opened the center, we had this one uh, yogi from New York City, an older man, he was in his 70s or possibly even 80s, psychologist, very busy. He had a technique which I liked. As I recall, he used to sit in the morning, but he wanted to sit also in the evening, but often was too involved or too engaged. So he made this kind of commitment to himself that before he went to sleep at night, he would at least get into the sitting posture. That's all. Even if it was for 30 seconds. Before he got into bed, he would get into the sitting posture. And he found that when he did that, very often, there was the energy to sit for some time. It's a good little technique. it every day. The first foundation of mindfulness that the Buddha talked of and is found countless times in the discourses. Over and over again, the Buddha emphasizes mindfulness of the body. We don't have to be on retreat to be mindful of the body. 
It is a powerful vehicle for staying awake. You're walking down the streets of wherever, you're moving from one room to another, you're getting into a car, you're getting out of a car, you're taking a shower, whatever, the body is there. If we can use it as a vehicle to really practice staying mindful of what the body is doing, not in some microscopic, detailed way, just enough to know what we're doing. The Buddha said of this kind of practice that mindfulness of the body leads to Nibbāna. That's a tremendous statement. That's actually all that's needed if we can do it, if we can really do it and practice it. It takes us right to the final understanding. Something else which can help to strengthen these three threads of effort, mindfulness, and concentration, which keep the mind strong and stable, especially in noisy, busy places, is to settle back and open up to the sounds that are around. Because I found that often in airports or on planes or whatever, there's often a tendency to shut out the noise, to somehow keep it out, very often it becomes a way to open up, letting the sounds in and actually refining our awareness just of hearing. Watch your breath every once in a while. It's always there. And even if it's just for a few breaths from time to time, It's a way of checking back in. One of the most interesting places to apply the practice outside of retreat, and in some ways one of the most difficult things to do, is to watch very carefully the tapes, the patterns of thought and emotion. What are the tapes that keep going through? Are they the same tapes that you've experienced for the last three months? Or do you flip sides when you go out? And just to see, what are they? What are these thoughts? Not to continually get lost in them, to see them as these repetitive habit patterns of mind. What are the emotions that overwhelm us? And just to arouse that interest to understand ourselves. Whenever anything becomes strong, becomes predominant in our lives, that can become a signal, that can become a a bell going off. Take a careful look. What is this? That's the mantra. What is this? It's not that the particular content of experience is going to change very much but our perspective on it, 
can change radically. Instead of being lost and identified, we can be investigating, we can be watching. This is the second training. First arena is that of sila. The second is samadhi, which is effort, mindfulness, and concentration. The third arena for us to be living the Dhamma is that of wisdom. In Pali, the word is panya. Sila, samadhi, panya. It's for the wisdom and understanding that we practice. We put forth this great, great effort, and not only on retreat, but in our lives, in order to understand. Because when we don't understand, when we don't understand ourselves, we don't understand the mind, we don't understand the world, it's like we are just going blindly through life, driven by forces that are beyond our control, we don't know what's happening. And the great power of the Dharma is that it illuminates what is true. And this is the force, this is the power of wisdom. It's this great light in the mind. A place of opportunity for the development of wisdom and one which we almost always overlook is each of those times that are difficult for us. We're going through life and there's a difficulty, maybe an interpersonal difficulty or an emotional one, a psychological one, or whatever. Whenever the mind begins to suffer in some way, that is exactly the place to stop and look carefully because that is the place of a tremendous opening. That's the place where we're stuck, where we're caught, where we're hooked, where we're identified with something. And if we can see it in that moment, we free ourselves a little bit more. Use the times of difficulty, of suffering, of unease. That is the juiciest time of practice. And in our lives, we're presented with many such opportunities. Mostly when we look at those times, when we're suffering, and we look to see what's going on, almost always we find that there is some kind of attachment. We're caught by something. We're identified with something. And so to look at the kinds of attachments that arise in our lives, it's not theoretical. At that time, it's not just some theory of the Four Noble Truths. We're in the middle of it. We're experiencing it. 
can we look? Can we say, okay, what is this now? Where is the attachment in this moment? Where am I holding on? The Buddha talked of several different areas of attachment that are very common in our lives. So he kind of gives us hints, he gives us clues as to where to look. A big area of attachment is sense desire, just desire for different things. And so if we're feeling some frustration, if we're feeling some suffering, can we look to see, is it because we're not getting something that we want? Because our desire is being frustrated. Is that what's causing the suffering? If we can see it, oh yeah. There's the possibility of a choice to let go of the wanting. This is a very profound point of understanding. That is, that on some very deep level, we choose to want. Very often, it's not a problem. You know, we go through the day and we're making many choices and we want this and we want that and we fulfill our desires and this is not a problem for us. But from time to time, we come up to a situation where the desire, where the want is a problem, that it is causing suffering for us. If we can remember that that want, that desire is a choice, then there's the possibility of simply letting go, of choosing not to want. This takes a tremendous sensitivity and a very deep and careful looking at that place inside. Another place of attachment that causes tremendous conflict is attachment to opinions and views about things. And we have attachments to opinions about everything. Opinions about politics, opinions about relationships, opinions about the Dhamma, opinions about practice, opinions about how to sit. It's very helpful to see the difference between having an opinion and being attached to one. We can have lots of ideas and views about things. Does the mind get caught by it? Get caught by the idea that, yes, this perspective is the only true perspective. That's a problem. And it's a big problem in the world. Take a look in times of interpersonal difficulty. You know, whether with friends or intimate relationships. See how much of that difficulty centers around this attachment to a certain perspective. It's a wonderful quality of mind to be able to honor one's perspective 
doesn't mean just not having an integrity about what one understands. The beauty of having one's perspective and being open to others. To say, yeah, there's another way of looking at it, another way of looking at it. It's also helpful, I think, to distinguish what we believe from what we know know through our experience. This came home to me very, very strongly when I first came back from India, having immersed myself in this tradition of practice. And I was at Naropa, which is a Tibetan Buddhist-sponsored place, and there was this big sign for Dujom Rinpoche, who was one of the great Tibetan lamas, the head of one of the lineages. And it said, Dujom Rinpoche, incarnation of Sariputta, who was one of the two chief disciples of the Buddha. And coming from my Indian-Burmese background, that was impossible, because fully enlightened beings don't get reborn. And it was just unthinkable. Sariputta could not be Dujum Rinpoche 2,500 years later. But there was Dujum Rinpoche, who's this great lama, and at least the poster said, incarnation of Sariputta. And so my mind just went on tilt. I didn't know how to reconcile the two. Until I realized that I didn't have a clue. I didn't know whether he was the incarnation of Sariputta or not. And it was such a relief just to let go of the opinion and to realize there are a lot of things we don't know. And it's fine not to know. We don't have to know everything. (laughs) And it really is just this relief and allows us to settle back. There are certain things we do know from our experience and there's lots we don't. And so we can stay open. It frees us from that strong narrowness you know, a viewpoint. It softens the mind. It makes our lives much more easy and flowing. It's when we're in times of difficulty, when there's suffering, it's just to look and investigate. Is there attachment to some kind of desire or want that's not being fulfilled? Is there attachment or a strong holding to a perspective that's being disagreed with. Another great and very subtle kind of attachment, which is an occupational hazard of meditators, is what Trungpa Rinpoche calls spiritual materialism. Sort of using practice in some way to separate oneself. It's a lot of what Mirabai was talking about last night in service work. Do we use our practice to separate, to feel different? As I'm a meditator and we start in very subtle ways to put on a persona or a mask of yogi. 
And it can be the mask of a good yogi, it can be the mask of a bad yogi, of a rebel yogi, of a, (laughs) I don't know, whatever all the masks are. But separating oneself out from everybody else. Take care with this, because it really just becomes a prison then. It's all Nama Rupa. That's all there is. Nama Rupa in various forms, in various guises. There's attachment to our wants, there's attachment to opinions, there's attachment to the spiritual materialism. The most basic kind of suffering, just the core of it, and the one which becomes most liberating to watch as we play out our lives is the attachment to the idea of self, of I. That there is someone in here around whom the universe revolves. It's bound to cause suffering. It's a setup. And so it becomes extremely interesting and freeing to watch ourselves as we go through our lives and just to see those moments in which the I, in which the self is created. It's not something that's there that we have to get rid of. All that's there is Nama Rupa, these mental, physical elements arising and passing. But as we go along, various things happen And there's a moment of identification, of solidification. We identify with some sensation in the body, either one that feels wonderful. We're in some activity and we just have these wonderful feelings. And so there can be this strong feeling, I like this, I want this. And there's an I right there. Maybe there's strong pain and there's a solidification in the aversion towards the pain or identification with an emotion, or with a thought pattern. Perhaps you've noticed in these past few days, just you going along, going along, (coughs) glitch. Watch for the glitching. Just see if in that moment, instead of simply getting caught and suffering because of it, we can take that as a wake-up bell. So the that moment of tightening around something becomes the signal for the wisdom to arise, to understand it, what's happening in that moment. Another interesting way to understand ourselves and to develop this force of wisdom, this light of wisdom in the mind, is to watch very carefully the stories we make up about ourselves, about experience. And one of the most important parts of the meditation training and the reporting in the interviews, was just to train the mind 
simply to see what's happening. Not to elaborate, not to construct stories about what's happening. Very often we live our life as if it's a story. And what this does is it tends to solidify the sense of the central character. It becomes so simple when we can drop back into the moment and simply be with the simplicity of experience, moment to moment. It becomes such a simple and easy way to live one's life. This is the power of wisdom, to really take the times of selfing, the times of suffering, and transforming it, transmuting it into understanding. In those moments, we are actually living the Four Noble Truths. We are living the teaching. Wisdom is this incredible radiance that illuminates our own minds, it illuminates other people. One of the greatest supports for the strengthening of wisdom is the recollection of impermanence and death. That's what keeps us wakeful, so we don't go back to sleep. The last words of the Buddha before he died, he was enlightened at the age of 35. He spent 45 years going around northern India trying to help illuminate, to help awaken people's minds. The last words before he died, all conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your liberation, your awakening with diligence. And so the recollection of that is of tremendous importance. Everything that we think is so important you know, now we get so involved in and caught up with, and it's all just passing. At the end of our lives, you know, as we're dying, what is it that we would have most wanted to do, to accomplish? And to keep that in mind so that we stay on track with what is truly of value to us. It takes remembering because there's so much in the world that is trying to put us back asleep. The power of the practice 
is tremendously strong. Sometimes I think of it as, you know, sometimes you see this blade of grass that just pushes its way up through concrete. Just this tiny little blade of grass. But the force of life in it is so strong that it cracks the concrete. These are the... These are all the Dharma seeds that have been planted. They're just like... little Dharma lawn. (laughs) And so on the one hand, the exhortation to bring effort into one's life in terms of cultivating these three trainings of sila and samadhi and panya. And at the same time, to develop this great sense of trust and of faith and of confidence in the Dhamma itself. The hook is in. Just to close, I'd like to read something from Ajahn Chah. It says, In closing, I wish that you continue your journeys and practice with much wisdom. Use the wisdom that you have already developed to persevere in practice. This can become the ground for your growth, for the deepening of yet greater understanding and love. Understand that you can deepen your practice in many ways. Don't be lazy. If you find yourself lazy, then work to strengthen those qualities which overcome it. Don't be fearful or timid. If you are timid in practice, then work with your mind so that you can overcome that. With the proper effort and with time, understanding will unfold by itself. But in all cases, use your own natural wisdom. You come to where you have no more questions, to that place of silence, to the place in which there is oneness with the Buddha, with the Dhamma, with the universe. And only you can do that. So do it already. From now on, it's up to you. Let's sit for a few minutes, and then if you have any last comments or questions, we can spend a little time discussing.
Do you have any questions or comments? Mm-hmm. Oh, clearly that that's so because what it's about is not a particular is not creating a particular experience, but it's really about transforming the quality of our consciousness so that increasingly awareness illuminates what's happening and so the breaking of the breaking of the silence and the interactions of integration week there's been this incredibly strong momentum and transformation which has happened. Uh, and it, it does carry through to a very large extent. It needs nurturing so that it doesn't begin to become denser and more solidified again. But it makes possible seeing our interactions and our relationships in a totally different way. I mean, it's quite amazing, the process. You know, it's like... (laughs) It's just a transformation of being. Yeah. Now the great, the great wings of the Buddha mind are wisdom and compassion. Those are the two, the two mainstays, the two supports, the two forces in the mind, which are the essence of our practice. 
And it's really not so different from the sitting in the sense that the sitting practice really does develop a great compassion towards each moment experience. Because compassion in that sense means just a very deep and genuine openness and receptivity to whatever is arising in the moment. When that's strong in our practice, it also becomes possible to keep that same quality you know, in relationship to other people and in relationship to ourselves relating to other people. Because often we get very self-judgmental you know, after an interaction. Um, something that I spoke about in some of the groups you know, early on in the week that has helped me a lot in sort of opening to a compassionate, um, a space of compassion. It's just, when there's self, when there's the strong sense of self, then of necessity there is a strong sense of other. And the more we understand selflessness, the deeper we can appreciate in different ways the sense of oneness. I think one of the things to keep in mind is that the feeling of connectedness and oneness doesn't take any particular form. I think often people are very, or may have, sentimental ideas about this feeling you know, of oneness with all things. And it's, sometimes it reminds me of a Hallmark card. <laughs> and it may be like that for some at some times. But I certainly wouldn't create that as the model, you know. And just look at how we relate to different parts of this body which we take to be self. It's like my arm or my leg. There's a feeling of oneness, but it's very ordinary. It's an ordinary oneness. But in that, there's care, there's respect, there's all the feelings attendant on connectedness. But it doesn't mean that there's necessarily an overlay of sentimentality. There's just things as they are. He attained enlightenment at the age of 35 after 
five mahakalpas and four incalculable eons and I don't know, you know, whatever those time periods are <laughs> of practice. So it's not that things things happen when all the conditions are ripe. And to become or to have the awakening of a Buddha takes a long evolution of practice and development of mind. Maybe this would be a good closing point because it feels so important to me to understand that our Dharma practice is not a question of doing a three-month course or even two three-month courses or three or whatever. You know, that we're part, that what we're engaged in is this immense process of freeing the mind. And we take steps on this journey, and this was a step. And there'll be many more steps. And when we see it as part of this bigger picture, or part of the whole, it allows us to rest. It allows us allows us to rest in the confidence or in the trust of the Dhamma, in the trust of the unfolding, rather than get caught up in you know, evaluations and judgments about this sitting or that sitting or this retreat or how it went. What we're doing is really big. And this is a part of it. This was... One more step towards liberation, towards freedom. <laughs> if you, uh, this is, if you have a mountain that's six, I don't know six miles, ten miles high, wide, deep, big mountain. And a bird comes along every hundred years and just drags a silk cloth along the top of the mountain. The length of time it takes for that bird to wear away the mountain is less than a mahakalpa. So we've been at it a while. <laughs> we've been at it a while. What would be wonderful for you to leave with is an understanding a really experiential or a deep sense of the potential in the mind for liberation. Now, we all have a lot of work to do, but to have that alive sense that we can do it. We can actually do it. And the path is laid out. 
It's the refinement of sila. And it's the strengthening of samadhi, of effort and mindfulness concentration. It's the growth of wisdom. This is the path to liberation. So just to... connect you know, with that sense in each one of us is such a powerful force in our lives. It just keeps the Dharma very strong. So, thank you. <laughs> it's hard actually to leave. <laughs> We'll have a the regular schedule tomorrow morning, the 8 o'clock sitting. Uh, the end of the sitting will close with a metta meditation and a dedication of merit. Thank you. <laughs>